do. And we're live. All right, people. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we've got returning guest, the one, the only, the legendary Mr. Declan Finn. So welcome back. Thank you for having me. I think we only get one more interview before we run out of your series. Give me time. <laughs> so so you're prolific, but you're prolific in linear series. So for people yeah. that like long series, it's great. For having you back multiple times, it limits us a little bit. <laughs> Just a little. So can you introduce yourself to, uh, to our listeners and viewers who might not know who you are? Uh, sure. I am Declan Finn, author of 30 published books. We won't even go into how many books I still have on my hard drive. <clears throat> not at all. Um, I am a New York native for my sins. Um, as penance, I've been here all 40 years of my life. Um, and frankly, I have a nine to five job just writing books. Um, it would be longer, but my wife actually wants to see me from time to time. So I'm not allowed to, you know, do 12, 15 hour days, damn it. So, um, and I'm everywhere. So are you from... in? Go ahead. I was going to ask if you were in New York City or just New York State. Oh, I am in. I am in the farthest edge of New York City while still staying within the city limits. Um, granted, that doesn't narrow it down, but I am as far from Manhattan as is humanly possible, without I don't, without you know actually leaving New York State. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm a Queens okay. native. Uh, I, I'm a Queens native, despite. Uh, not sounding like Fran Drescher. Uh, I know that's, that's how, a good thing, though. Uh, oh, thank God. Well, even if you listen to Fran Drescher in her normal speaking voice, she exaggerates the you know overly nasal quality that she has when she's doing her comedy shtick. But um, but yeah, um, and I write all over the place. I've got thrillers, murder mysteries. Comedy, murder mystery, thrillers at sci-fi conventions, uh, space opera, horror, and one that is technically paranormal romance, but most paranormal romance I have seen usually do not use rocket-propelled grenades as often as I do. I mean, you when in doubt, frags out, so Amen. I, I can approve. So the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we first found them. So I actually first met him in person at RavenCon in 2016. He stands out because I think it was orange, but I'm colorblind. So a very bright and gaudy coat that he wears so everyone can find him. Oh, yeah. It's a bright. It's a basically a canary yellow. But, yeah, close enough. And, I, yeah. and then uh, the... I would say the funny thing is, is I've seen people that were talking to you the day before because we, we talked a couple times at, at that RavenCon and you took your coat off because you were walking around and it was hot and they didn't recognize that it was you. Same you, same everything but the coat. Yes. Oh, yeah. I've, I've had people walk up to me at other conventions, you know, Liberty Con, Raven, Dragon. And if I'm not wearing the coat and I say hi to them, they stop, they stare very intently. It's like, 
oh, it's you. I didn't recognize you without the coat on. It's like, these are people who have been to my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> like, no coat. So the, uh, no the other... The other part of that is while we did meet in person, I didn't put it together that you were you until Doc introduced us again when we started doing the podcast and we started talking. I'm like, oh, I remember now. So now for Cole correctly, he, he can give proof of life. I'm a real boy. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, you are. For Cole correctly, I want to say we met after some kind of history uh, history panel. Yes, because I think I was, it was a 1632. No, couldn't have been. I think it was uh, a 1632. Couldn't have been. I, I went to never, one of those they had there, too. Yeah. Okay. I've never actually read the series, and, you know, rest in peace, Eric Flint. But, um... So, yeah. this was, um, it said 1632, and I thought it was going to be about the book series. Instead, it was a living historian showing us about weapons from 1632, which was cool in its own right, but it was not what I thought when I walked in. <laughs> um, which, like I said, you know, I'm a history nerd, so like, okay, I mean, you could have told me the truth, I'd still have come. Oh, yeah. But, um, so there were other history panels there, I just can't remember which ones they were, because it's been X number of years. We won't oh, yeah. do the math. No, let's not. But, but yeah, that was, that was fun, that was fun time, so... Do you still do you still do the convention circuit, or has uh, has COVID shut you down for that? Uh, COVID shut down a lot. Uh, I have been attending uh, Mad Mike's Michael C. Williamson's confinement, which is entertaining. They're smaller, um, but they avoid they avoid a lot of the idiocies around lockdowns. Um, but ye, I'm actually looking towards uh, Dragon Con this year. And um, probably FenCon down in Dallas. Um, assuming they actually get around to it. Hmm? What is FenCon? FenCon uh, is apparently out of uh, the Dallas Fort Worth airport. It, okay. uh, airport hotels. Um, and a friend of mine, Carl Gallagher, who has his own wonderful sci fi series and a fantasy, um, he invited me over because he's the science track guy he is literally a rocket okay. scientist and um he's like hey come down to fencon it's like i like texas so sure <laughs> gotta have some barbecue while you're there you can't go to texas and not eat oh. barbecue i'm told oh, it's yeah. the thing to do oh yeah uh i've, I've got um, a friend who grills a lot i should have got two i'm learning the manly art of grilling i'm learning <laughs> So, uh, do you drag your, your lovely missus with you, or does she hide from the world and uh, all those weirdos? Oh, in this case, she's actually ahead of me. She, um, we both went down to Texas back a few weeks ago, back in June, and for our friend Moira's wedding. Um, Moira Grayland, if anyone. Oh, I know her. Score. Yeah, uh, good people. And, she's a nice lady. Oh yeah, she is. And uh, my wife decided to help them design a farm because. They want to be subsistence farming. And she grew up on farms during her childhood, so she's going to help. So basically, I'm going to go down to FenCon and pick her up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. The uh, farming thing, that's uh, homesteading, is something I've, I've been looking into. But unfortunately, land is expensive right now. So if you don't have a lot of money to start with, it can be a little bit pricey. And yeah, then you well, get to a point where, am I young enough still where I could actually man the farm now that I've got the money to do it? It's a, oh. Yeah, good question. But anyway, 
we are not the homesteading podcast, so we will just move on so we don't bore everyone else. Uh, and I'm sure you get enough of it from your lovely wife. So we can't let you uh, start the interview without the religion question, but you've been on here twice before. Uh, and I think once for a fireside chat, so we've got to mix it up for you. So Lost in Space, Battlestar Galactica, or Eureka? The original Battlestar Galactica. Um, I was fond of the original. You know, it's got Dirk Benedict, who is better known as Face from A-Team. And I just like the cast and the world. It was a little bit more upbeat and varied than the more recent version. I love Edward James almost, but they needed better writers. That's just me. I actually liked it. I even liked what they did with Starbuck. So the the Starbuck character, his backstory, and we've probably bored everybody because I say this all the time, but his backstory wasn't as compelling as when, when they made it the girlfriend of the dead brother. And that's like, that's how he died kind of thing. Like that added something to why he was so close to the family that I thought was compelling. Normally, you know, if you're going to change a character just to fit check the box, I don't like it. That one actually, I thought added something different, not better, just different to the story. So I'm like, dude, I'm all on board. Oh, I didn't even mind. I, I did. I, I didn't even mind recasting uh, Starbuck as a woman. My problem was I watched the pilot miniseries. It was a four hour job. And by the time I was done, it's like, I don't care about any of you people. Have a nice day. I liked it. I think it got so lost in the grimdark that it lost its way a little bit towards the end. I watched the miniseries. I watched New Caprica and I watched uh, BSG, uh, the second one. My, I, I like the original. My only complaint about the original is I bought the box set, and rather than break it up by episode, so that way you could watch it a little at a time, they just give you a series of two-hour DVDs, and it's like watching movie after movie. And I'm like, I want to be able to stop it and come back to it. And that helps yeah. if you have the episodes broken up by episode. So that's just a nitty-gritty complaint. I'm told there are other editions that were put out that fix that, but I have yet to find it. Okay. But uh, I do I do like the uh, the modern take on the uniforms from the original, keeping in mind when it was filmed, because at least it didn't go full Star Trek, <laughs> where everyone's new wearing like, like not fire-resistant nylon, because that's what you'd want on you in the middle of a spaceship that goes boom. So, all right. And because we're polytheistic, we've got Conan the Barbarian, the Sword of Shannara, or the Wheel of Time. Let's go, Conan. Okay. Um, so are you excited that uh, the, the rights have been bought, so there's going to be more Conan coming out? I'm going to be interested to see what happens. Uh, I feel sorry for Jason Momoa for what they did with that version. Um, I am actually preferred the original uh, Arnold movies. They were campy, but I enjoyed them. They were fun. Uh, granted, it was very strange where it's like, Okay, James Earl Jones is chewing the scenery. Okay, I'm with it because it's James Earl Jones. <laughs> I, I can never think of him without thinking, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> he was he was in Field of Dreams, the most excellent movie. If you haven't seen it, what have you done with your life? You need to fix this. All right. <laughs> so we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast like both the fantastical and the scientific but what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? That's a hard decision because my earliest thoughts go back to Star Trek and Star Wars, and I'm not sure either one of them qualify as pure science fiction, <laughs> considering how much Trekno babble 
they just made up. And let's face it, Star Wars, you've got space wizards. So, yes. <laughs> we'll we'll take it. Yeah. It's hard when they start blurring the lines. Oh. So what was your first memory of it? Was it the Star Trek? Was it Star Wars? Oh, it, it was definitely Was it Star a video Trek. game? Oh, Star Trek. It was Star Trek. Okay. Uh, six o'clock every after every evening. Uh, it's you know right before Jeopardy came on. It was right after dinner, and it was uh, it was in our neck of the woods. It was Channel Eleven WPIX, where it's oh look they're doing another Star Trek rerun. Okay, so that was pretty All much right. my earliest memory. I could dig that. All right. So what is it about speculative fiction as a genre that you love? Mm. Just ways to expand everything. Uh, I like writing it because I can make crap up and I don't have to be a perfect expert in guns and calibers. I can just say, okay, well, this is a flechette gun. Thank you. Have a nice day uh, and move on because they don't actually exist. Last time I checked. So nobody can tell me I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> That's part of it. Um, but no, I, I just enjoy being able to design whole cultures and technologies and put my own little accents on different uh, cultures and languages and just designing entire, you know, histories from the ground up. Okay. That's a good reason. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you telling stories in that space? Oh, um, fan fiction. Uh, <laughs> I started off okay. I started off with writing what I did not know what fan fiction was at the time. I wasn't that big on the internet. I had AOL back then, and it was just a matter of I wanted this story out of my head, and it spiraled. It spiraled a lot, and it spiraled over the course of 15 months and 4,000 pages. Um, and it was even worse because I had no idea what I was doing. So I was writing single-spaced, 8.5 by 11 pages, and I wasn't doing the word counts. So I wound up with 100,000 word, no, 150,000 word novels that you know and i pumped out four of them and it just by the time i was done it looked absolutely nothing like the story i started with or the fandom i had stuck it in so by the time i had done that okay you know by the time i was done with that i had basically rewired my brain into yes i'm a writer and i can't shut it off nobody tells you about that part okay so many writers will let their own real-life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific moments, that uh, formidable moments, that shaped you as a, as a novelist? No. I have had real-life events go into um, individual stories, but, uh, I, hell, I've used real-life rants that I've turned into uh rants for other characters, mostly comedy routines, but uh, there is no one major formative uh, instance. Um, you know, 
aside from again locking myself in a room for about 15 months and oh look i've got a book uh you know it, it's one of the joys of being antisocial as a teenager where it's like i'm having more fun with the people in my head than the people in my high school so that's probably not that um uncommon uh high school's brutal so uh let's transition to the writing side from the writing side to the fan side so have you gotten any cool fan art or cosplay of your characters yet i've got one i've got fan art actually um i had a few people for a while send me in their versions of my characters from my vampire series um i had one person design an alien uh just to be uh, straightforward, the fan fiction turned into a space opera. The original, um, the original uh, space opera was Babylon Five for the fan fiction part, and uh, somebody was asking, "Okay, so this alien here uh, is this actress over here, right?" It's like, yeah. So I wound up getting an email with a photo of the actress being computer. You know, CGI'd into looking more like the actual alien I had on the page, which was not what I was expecting. It's like, cool, it works. I mean, you got to respect people with that level of skill. I certainly don't have it. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, that particular fan wound up designing several of my covers after a while before I wound up going on to a public, before I stopped self publishing and went to a publisher. So. Although uh, my the per current person designing my covers is, well, for my current series is actually my wife. So she has handy all, to have that in the family. Uh huh. No, I did not marry her because she could do covers. Uh, I'm not. Quite, it was just a handy bonus. It was a handy bonus. <laughs> Does she do it professionally for other people, or is it just just for you? She has done it for other people, but she's not making a living off of it. I don't know why, considering the prices are borderline larcenous. It's like, but people will pay them. So, but nobody listens to me. And she's married to me, so she doesn't have to listen to me. This is true. Nobody warns you of that, about that before you get married. All right. So has anybody asked you for your autograph since you started writing? Um. I've had a few people come up to me at autograph sessions, uh, some at confinement, uh, one or two at a Liberty Con. I don't think anybody's, well, usually when I'm parked at a signing at Dragon Con, I'm parked in like a back corner somewhere. So if you can find me, uh, you can probably get my autograph. But uh, first time I was at Dragon Con, they parked me in massive room, great big room. Plenty of room for signer. Um, however, in front, near the door, they had Sherilyn Canyon. So that line went out the door and around the block. So I would, if, if people actually wanted to get to me, I don't think they could have. That's unfortunate timing. Sometimes those things happen, though. Oh yes. So oh, do you remember oh. the? Do you remember the first time someone asked you for your autograph? Um, probably, uh, I think it was an early Liberty Con, let's say 2016. Now, Liberty Con is the one that's mostly authors and, and veterans, right? 
It's mostly authors. It's small. There are a lot of veterans. It has a cap of like 800 people. And it's about 60% yeah. authors or people who want to be authors. I don't think there are any, but I don't think there is a civilian in any sense of the term there. It's like they either are authors, want to be authors, are veterans, or are still active, really. So before I realized that um, crowds and my, um, my, PTSD didn't go together because I was overdosing. Uh, I was taking more than was recommended of certain medicines to make it so I could could handle the crowds. I looked at Liberty Con to try to go there, and uh, oh. apparently it fills up so quickly. Like they're like, "Oh, it's open." I'm like, "Okay." And an hour later, I went. And they're like, "We're closed." Oh, okay. <laughs> Look up uh, if Mad Mike still does it. Go to try check out one of his confinements. Because there's plenty of room. There aren't a hell of a lot of people. Uh, there are only two, three hundred folks total. Um, and it feels like less than that. Uh, I gotta tell you, uh, I've stopped going to Liberty Cons less because of the tickets and more because of it's busy. It's busier than Dragon Con somehow. I've had more relaxed conversations with random people at Dragon Con than I have at Liberty Con. And I still can't figure out how. There are like 80,000 people at Dragon Con. But Liberty Con feels busy. Interesting. Yeah. Is it because each track feels like a con onto itself at Dragon? Is that what it is? Probably. But uh, hell, I've run into random people at Dragon Con that I know because you know they trip over me. As opposed to Liberty Con where try to have one conversation going. And I believe Chuck Gannon coined the term drive-by schmoozing because you know you're trying to have a conversation with one person you've got another person who's trying to walk by then sees you and starts another conversation and you're trying to have two conversations at the same time uh i maxed out i cannot do that no no I, I maxed out at three conversations one year um actually an acquaintance of mine named amy gibbons tried to talk, introduce herself to me and it's like yeah hi one was one second and i was talking to two other people and you know she disappeared because she's like you know, 5-2. But that would happen. So that, that's uh that's we, we go all nerdy about conventions and Doc's not even here so to enjoy it because he's planning Dragon Con. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good all luck, right. Sir. So have you Yeah. <laughs> so have you ever spotted anybody out in public reading your books? Uh no. Uh, most of, but then again, most of my sales are electronic. How would I even find them? Stalkers. Anyway, um, that joke sounds a less, a lot less creepy when Doc says it. Uh, <laughs> so finally, it, 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 she gets a you know, being a girl gets you a pass on a lot of things that you and I say they're like, ooh, creepy. <laughs> we'll just move on. So, uh, what's the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? Uh, I had a fan hit on me, and the. You married her? No, no, no. Uh, actually, that was a different fan who married <laughs> me. Uh, no, th this this was this was the problem of uh, she saw a lot of the overlap with me and one of my characters, and she liked the character more than she liked me. So and it's like, hi, I am not this person. <laughs> uh, so that got a little weird. Yeah, I could see that. 
So did she think that you were like with the Illuminati too? Because you write some shadowy organization. So I, I write some shadowy, shadowy organization, but the one she was uh, more most enamored of was the guy who felt uh, right at home killing vampires because he had needed to kill somebody in self-defense once and found that he really liked killing people. But uh, he held it in check. So it's like a Dexter-esque kind of thing. Yeah, he's Dexter-esque until it's like, wait, I can kill vampires. They turn to dust. They leave no evidence. And this is completely guilt-free because most of them are evil buggers. Cool! <laughs> and that was the one she kind of went for. So so does that series have good vampires too, or are they all evil? Uh, that has good vampires, and it's one of the lines I repeatedly slide in where it's like, Yes, I go to confession. Yes, it hurts. And, oh, because the, the holy grounds. Oh, holy ground, confessing sins feels like, you know, something's being surgically removed. Uh, however, uh, one of the vampires, well, actually several of the vampires, end up going to mass afterwards, and they get their blood from the chalice. Oh, that's unique. Oh yeah, I've always I, I keep meaning to read this series, but like they're not in audiobooks yet, and that's mostly what I'm doing my reading these days. Well, you're in luck. Oh, um, you'll you'll travel down to my house and read them to me. <laughs> no, I. Oh, oh, what? Why do that? We've got electronics. I can read them and record them. Oh, actually, <laughs> I'm actually uh, getting them republished again, but that's another story with Three Ravens Press. And they've already assured me that they're looking into getting somebody who can do audio readings. And I'll take it. But, uh, you know, I'll record a few cha chapters for them and see if they, you know, see if they hate my voice as much as I do. Yeah, that's the, the hard thing is because is people that are on the go, like audiobooks is a, is a salvation. It keeps you reading oh, yeah. back. Oh, yeah. But that yeah. also means that if you're yes. independent, it could be cumbersome because... There's some sketchiness on the reporting of sales from some entities that shall rename, remain nameless. Well, which, enough about Amazon. You know, makes, makes things, yeah, <laughs> which makes can make things a little difficult. But all right, so this is where we talk about everything you have written, Declan. So could you give us the Reader's Digest version of your body of works? All right, 30 books. Thankfully, uh, half of them are one series, um, St. Tommy NYPD, uh, which is basically a cop who has finds himself with the sort of miracles you would get from wonder-working saints by location, smelling evil, a few things like that. And the same day he discovers he's got these new abilities, uh, he winds up like, fighting a possessed serial killer. And, you know, we're on the, you know, we're, we're off to the races from there. I've got uh, one series that's straight thriller espionage uh i think i was reading modesty blaze and rod and robert ludlam back to back so um that's my quote williams and miller series because those are the main characters love at first bite which is the vampire series um that's a good chunk of them i've got two murder mysteries at that, a convention. hold on the love at first bite we've actually had you on to talk about so if you check out the old episodes he's in there i believe mm -hmm. that was season one Oh, yeah. Uh, 
you've also interviewed me about White Ops, uh, which is my space opera. And it's, you know, my version of Knights Templar in space. And, you know, <laughs> there are there's some overlap with Babylon 5, but at this point it's like, there's an epic war in space and it's got a space station and that's about all they've got in common anymore. Um, why not? Oh, um, my Pious trilogy, uh, which is basically, I'm shooting at Dan Brown with more ammunition than he ever used in all of his books put together. Um, sorry, mm. I'm, I, am a, I am a historian by training as we kind of touched on earlier and good God, Dan Brown pissed me right the hell off like one that didn't happen two that didn't happen three there is no way that could have happened you um so i did a paper in graduate school about a topic uh pope pius the 12th i discovered how many lies were told about him and i figured you know what if dan brown can tr spread lies through fiction i can spread through truth through fiction so um, I basically slipped in history between the bullets. Uh, that one has been unpublished, same with Live and Let Bite, uh, for right now. Uh, the publisher fell apart. Uh, the old publisher was Silver Empire, so the empire fell, and <laughs> I'm putting the pieces back together. Uh, oh, two of them, I two books are murder mysteries at sci-fi conventions. Uh, one of them is at Wyvern Khan down in Atlanta, dealing with a murder mystery around the, um, what was it, the tearful puppies versus the puppy punters, and, you know, somebody then gets murdered, and you have to, and the security guy has to figure out what the bleep's going on, and, uh, you know, absolutely nothing to do with anything in real life. Honest. <laughs> and I'm just, we stay apolitical enough that uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to believe you and we're going to move on. Yeah. Because uh, this but, is the apolitical podcast. Yes. Uh, but that was, those were like, one was called It Was Only Unstung. The other one was called Set to Kill. So I had fun. Um, and I wound up doing. I can see a, that. I mean, there's, there's room for lampooning. Oh, yeah. And I wound up doing a murder mystery period piece with my father, of all people. Um, Oh yeah, um, he you know it, it was set in Brooklyn in nineteen seven. Sorry, Bedford Stuyvesant, Brooklyn in nineteen seventy five, and my father had been roped into being an associate pastor at. Uh, <laughs> well, if you don't know anything about Bedford Stuyvesant uh, or Bed Stuy in the nineteen seventies, it was a very colorful place to be. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've done a few history okay. books. I've done a few history books as well. Uh, one on Pius the Twelfth, one on uh, Rebel Songs of the Irish Republican Army. Because again, history nerd, and I got a CD of fifty Irish rebel songs, and you had to go through them with a freaking footnote <laughs> on every other lyric. Like, wait, what is this? Who is this? Okay, let me look this up. <laughs> the so. songs that came out of the Irish, uh, the Troubles, the IRA, are pretty uh, amusing, too, if you listen to the lyrics. Half of them are uh, amusing. That's that yeah. amusing. 
That's when music actually told a story and it wasn't just like auto-generated whatever. Oh, hell yeah. So. Okay, it's funny as hell when you realize how many songs, you know, ancient Irish folk songs that were written that afternoon about something that happened earlier that day. Yes. <laughs> so the, the other part of that is sometimes the story was so oblique that we listened to it at the time. We didn't know. And then as an adult, you look it up like, oh, oh that's what they were trying to say. <laughs> I wonder if the adults of the era that listened to it the first time knew because I didn't. Some of those ones went right over my head. Oh, yeah. Um, so for, for, for anyone who has an interest in the field, I recommend at least listening to a song called My Little Armalite. <laughs> oh, I've heard it. Fun, isn't um, it? Totally, Shin. It is. It is. And Kinky Boots is another good one if you like the uh, the period pieces. And no, it doesn't mean what you think it means, people. Um, that's the other thing is when you read period pieces, sometimes the slang doesn't mean the same thing then that it means now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you get, like, oh. Yeah, yeah one, one of the lines so, in My Little Armalite is, you know, and the only crack in South Arma. And you have to realize that if you look at the lyrics, it's not crack as in crack cocaine. It's Irish slang for a good time. Trust me, I had to look yeah. up those lyrics because it's like, wait, the only crack. When is this song written? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. But that's I, I like a lot of folk music because, like I said, I like songs that tell a story. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and I, I, pref I prefer, like, the acoustic to the overly produced. So I yeah. know I'm weird. Hey, I even enjoy... Tom Lehrer's parody of folk songs. Um, oh, what the hell was it? The, the, the refrain was rickety tickety tin. Um, oh, oh I know, it's, it. I know what song you're talking about. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, so before we lose the last 12 people listening, <laughs> so while all of those stories sound fascinating, why don't you tell us about Hellspawn, a Catholic action horror novel, which is the first book in the St. Tommy NYPD series? So, where did you get the premise for this universe, and how did you come up with the idea for the series? Uh, I got the premise at St. John's University while I was doing my undergrad. Um, part of it okay. was, you know, you have to go for nine credits of religion uh, at the time. So I, I picked at random uh, Christian spiritualism and mis spiritual Christian spirituality and mysticism. And one class talked about charisms, the gifts from God I mentioned earlier. And between smelling evil, by location, levitation, my first thought was, give this guy a cape and he's a superhero. Uh, and when we got to yeah. the part about, you know, saints who could smell evil, my first thought was, congratulations, he's now a cop because you have to give a cop the ability to smell evil. Wouldn't that be fun? And... Uh, 15, yeah, about 15 years later, uh, my publisher at the time, uh, Silver Empire, asked uh, for a new IP, and I gave him three. This was one of them. Uh, and, of course, even the original idea I had at the time was, uh, you know, a cop with, a pow with the powers of a saint has to have, as his first villain, uh, a possessed serial killer. <laughs> and... We were off to the races. Yeah. So you are proof to the uh, the question you always get as authors, when people are wanting to be authors, they'll reach out like, "How do you come up with your ideas?" And I'm like, "Oh, child, how do you turn them off?" <laughs> like, I, you and I have had this conversation 
oh, off yeah. word, offline too. It's just like, ugh. and if you like some of the, the folky music, I suggest the modern version. I have no Fs to give and the Fs is not, is, is the word you think it is. And it's, it's a funny uh, modern take on that kind of style of music. So you should, you should check that out. People you'll thank me later. Don't listen to it when you have kids in the room. All right. And with that, we are going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. Here comes your next romp in the graveyard. In Hunters for Hire, a new urban fantasy adventure by best-selling author Jonathan Yanez, a guy down on his luck puts sign twirling and rideshare driving on the back burner to track down the supernatural for a pretty penny. Find out what happens when John Hunter enters the secret underworld. Download your copy and start listening today. Now available on Amazon and Audible. All right, so that led to uh, some interesting um, discussions with my mother when we were vetting the commercial. And she's like, ooh, that's a sexy voice. I'm like, Mom, you know I'm sitting right here. So I had to tell, uh, I had to call Jonathan and tell him. And he's like, yeah, I've got no shame in that. I'm like, oh, people. So, so we need to get someone who sounds a little older and a little more crickety for our commercials, I think, just to avoid the discomfort. <laughs> All right. So this is the part. We were just got the, uh, the inspiration for his St. Tommy's series. But before we dig in, we are going to take a moment where we look at this cover. And you can tell me the story behind this art. It is popping up right now. All right. So, so is this the cover you designed? Is it, is it one that your wife designed? Is this one from the original publisher? What's the story on this cover? Uh, that one's the original publisher. Uh, Silver Empire had commissioned Steve. I'm I'm going to butcher his last name. Steve Bolio, Bolo, or whatever it is, however you pronounce his name. Um, and he designed the first nine of them, and. You know, I didn't really have a lot of input until about, like, book 10. <laughs> Mainly because after book 10, I had to find a different publisher. Uh, up to book 9, Silver Empire was going in pretty good fashion. Uh, and then that happened. Um, and if you'll put that off to the side for a moment and make me a little bit bigger on the screen, I got a funny for you. Because... Okay. That is mostly Hold stock on. art. Oh, okay. Hold on. You said you wanted to be big on the screen, yes. so I was okay. trying to let you know your share something. This was my self-published version of a pious man. Does the image look familiar to <laughs> oh, you? Same guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like it was, it's very strange. Where it's That's... like they're using my they're using they're using the exact same cover, you know cover art the stock stock footage. It's like that's just weird. Well, I mean, it, there was the so my Sleeping Legion series has the same Space Marine stock art that everyone else is using too. The difference is because it was one of those ones just from clip art. It was like Space Marine generically, whatever. But what happened is, is with mine, everyone else went away so they could stand out and not be using the same artist or the same stock art. To now, mine is retro and no one else is using it. <laughs> so, so if you leave this long enough. It might go from stock art to classic. It could happen. Although I imagine when you relaunch these, you're going to want to uh, potentially rebrand the covers. Uh, right now. I, I would assume. Well, right now, um, 
the new publisher is Tuscany Bay Press, and they worked so fast. Uh, they've already, you know, Silver Empire closed in April, and Tuscany Bay had all the ones that had been published already out by mid-May. So they they did a pretty darn quick, quick job. So okay, well we're glad they're back out, especially since you've got more books. So oh, yeah. how many novels do you have left? And then we're going to dive into this deep into the series, but and the books. Um, and we're timing this the way we are because he just released book was it ten or eleven? Book ten, and book eleven is coming okay. out at the end of August. Sorry, book so, 11. Yeah. How many unpublished books? Because you said you have some. You've got a lot in your drawer because you write faster than most publishers can keep up with. So yeah, how many unpublished novels were waiting around? At least three that I can think of off the top of my head. Because I've got uh, two more space opera, one more thriller. Um, oh, yo, by the way, I'm also on book three of a sequel series to the vampire books once they get republished. So I've got six unpublished books right now. I am not that fast of a writer. I don't know how you do it. Uh, if I could borrow half your speed, I would be happy. Well, I've been doing it for 25 years now. And it's just a matter of, I see the, I see the things in my head and I just, write down what I see. Um, hell, most of the time when I edit, it's just a matter of I put it to the side, I come back later, and then I'm reading it and it's like, no, this is not right because this doesn't exactly convey the image I have in my head. <laughs> so. Okay. It, and everyone operates differently. There are some people who just see words and I don't understand those people. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I, I picture it as a movie in my head, and then I go from there. I do yes. the same when I'm reading. So, oh, yeah. all right. I I wonder if that would have been true on the authors that were writing in the era before TV. Would they still have seen it as a almost like in their head, like a play, I guess, or would they? I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to that, though. So we'll just move on. Sure. So this is the part where we dive deep into Hellspawn and the St. Tommy series. So what would your 30-second elevator pitch be for Hellspawn? Um, a average cop, homicide detective, has the finds himself with the powers of a saint and has to do battle with the with a possessed serial killer who's trying to basically destroy him, his family, and ultimately New York City. So do you write, uh, do you set all of the series in, well, I guess it's new NYPD detective. Does he ever go to other cities as a detective, like with task force and stuff, or is oh, it yeah. wholly contained? Oh, uh, by the end of book three, I have him alienating so many people that uh, he's been transferred to the intelligence division. Now, I don't know if any other law, city law enforcement has an intelligence division that sends people abroad because the NYPD has got, you know, contacts, play, outposts in Russia, the Middle East, England. So they're all over the bloody place, which, so, you know, so we just, after book three, 
he's pissed off so many people, it's time to send him elsewhere. So um, books four, five, and six are what? Uh, London, German? Well, it's all over Middle Europe, really. And uh, book six is he's trying to get a vacation in New England, and I deliberately put him in Lovecraft country. Did he go to Muscatine University or Muscatonic? Um, I misspelled it deliberately, but there is an evil university <laughs> there. So, wow, okay. So I'm, I'm assuming if you've got all this outpost and overseas stuff, that this is a post-9-11, like this is set post-9-11 New York. You didn't set oh, yeah. it like the 80s or the 90s? Uh, no, okay. I, I couldn't make them period pieces because I would go crazy making sure I had every little detail correct and I'd never get anything done. <laughs> yeah, the research holes are too easy to fall into because they're so much fun. Oh, yeah. So you, the subtitle for the book one is a uh, Catholic horror action novel, I believe. Yeah. And since we mentioned the word Catholic yeah. in the title, how was your book series and um, received by both the Catholic community and the Catholic Church? Um, the only real uh, impact, the only real feedback I've gotten has been from priests online who have said they love my work and they can't wait for the next book, which I'll take that as, I'll take that as a response, but uh, really there is no community that has responded otherwise. So I asked that partly because, you know, you've talked about it in your other interviews that you're, you're pretty devoutly Catholic. So I was just wondering if that was something I, I've heard and I don't know this to be true, but when Dan Brown stuff was coming out, Supposedly, the Pope was trying to get it banned. And like I said, I don't know if it's true, but it made for good ad, if nothing else. <laughs> um, but, but you know, I, so I, you never quite know if the church actually ever takes stances on this or if it's all just smear merchants and ad campaigns. Mostly smear merchants and ad campaigns. Uh, most priests <laughs> okay. I know, it's, most priests I know are going like, he said, what? No, that's just stupid and moves on to something else. Um Help. Oh, but then again, it's interesting to watch trends fade out because even Tom Hanks has said, oh, yeah, all those Dan Brown movies were stupid. I did them for the money. It's like, well, you're an actor. I should hope you did them for the money. Yeah. Well, people thought that it was all real back. At, I guess it's hard to remember that far back, but yeah, I, they, I always they, took them as just movies. Yeah. Well, the, the real problem were the books because the books were a lot more offensive and uh you know you, okay. had a whole you had like a dozen historians all go that's not how history works um the movie, <laughs> uh, I, I noticed when the movies came out they put most of the offensive lines into the mouth of the pre person we found out is you know our psycho <laughs> yeah so I always just linked that series right up there with National Treasure. I mean, it's fun. It's entertaining. It's historic-esque, but it's not real history. Yeah. I actually enjoy yeah. the National Treasure ones because you can tell they are not taking themselves seriously. But then again, they hired Nicolas Cage, who doesn't know how to take himself True. seriously. And sadly, they get more history right than the History Channel, but that's not saying much. Aliens! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
<laughs> my mind went there too. All right, so now we're gonna uh, focus back on Hellspawn. I dis distracted us just a little bit to see with the Catholic part, but what do you think makes um, Hellspawn special? In the series writ large, if you want to answer it that way. What makes it special is it's, you can see Catholic influences, that is, you know, this kind of brand, but I've had a whole bunch of people leave reviews where it's like, I'm a Presbyterian and I still like this book. Um, and you know, there were multiple flavors of different Christian denominations. Uh, one of my bigger fans is some flavor of Asatru, I think. I never asked, but, you know, he, he's you know, worshipping one of the older deities. Um, and most people who, you know, are to the right of Mao seem to take it for what it is, a fun thriller using, well, using a constant mythology. Um, I'm not using it to preach anything. In fact, the only people I have preaching in my books are, well, the psychopaths, uh, because, well, I have not seen an evil in real life that wasn't some flavor of narcissistic. And they do love to hear themselves okay. talk. In fact, um, I have heard that the number one job of most defense attorneys is throwing out conf confessions from criminals who love to hear themselves talk. So, okay. You know, and I just so, put that in to understand what exact, how exactly the villain thinks and how exactly they rationalize some of the crap they do. So because it's modern times and I, I've talked to people that already texted to say a large part of their criminal investigation is just looking at the person's social media because most of the time they're stupid and they confess yes, inadvertently online. Yes, Do you involve that since he has the magical ability to just smell evil or is it all supernatural sort of investigating? I will usually have some subplot involving norm well, normal criminals as much normal as you can get in some of the criminal community um where i have had criminals you know get into casual conversations with the cop and casually confess and then go ah crap <laughs> and they'll come quietly because he's that pleasant and you know it's like yeah you got me i was an idiot uh, so there is some of that okay. going on but the primary villain will not get taken out just by looking at social media. Um, mainly because <laughs> if they're not bright, at least the demons they answer to are. And I've got it. Fair, least, fair. Yeah, and I've got at least one recurring character who is older than social media and is older than the 20th century and is... Well, he doesn't believe in social media because, well, <laughs> he was a 1700s pirate. <laughs> well, I mean, wouldn't they want to brag if they were that kind of person back then? I don't know. No, he, he's he's smart enough to keep his head down. Uh, and what some of the funnier routines? All right, I put, some of the funnier routines I put in his mouth, where it's like, 
you know. How are these people so stupid? Why can't they even summon a demon without help? And he'd go on these rants where everyone's <laughs> just going like, yeah, whatever you say, dude. <laughs> okay, okay. So what tropes do you feel that Hellspawn hits the best? Um, let's go with the everyman version, you know. Whatever archetype John McClane was, as he gets the crap kicked out of him in every single movie, uh, because I really like beating the hell out of my main characters. I get more interesting results from them the more I beat them up. So, um, Tom, you know, Tommy Nolan is one of those people who will not go down, uh, no matter what you do to him. Uh, even hell, I even think I broke his leg once, and he still wound up taking out the main bad guy. I think that was book three, but don't okay. hurt me. Books start to blur after the first dozen. So, <clears throat> this is true. Um, so, do you do mostly the action? Is it mostly hand to hand? Is it mostly gunplay? Is it a mix of all of the above? It's a mix. I prefer hand to hand because, uh, as I said earlier. Uh, if people are punching at each other, I don't have to listen to people complain that I got the ballistics wrong. Um, although there are times where I will even prefer chemistry because, congratulations, this monster is bulletproof. Uh, let's hit it with, hold on, let me see it. Chlorine trifluoride. Um, if you don't know what that is, look it up. It's fun. <laughs> it's one of those things that will set sand on fire and burns through concrete <laughs> and it's ignited so you uh, macgyver the crap out of it oh yeah i macgyver the crap out of a lot um did no you wait no okay sorry i was trying to remember if you did the anthology supernatural streets you had not you did area 51 never mind correct uh, otherwise i was going to go into the chemistry of well the short story i submitted to you it's like no i didn't submit to you never mind <laughs> it's all good yeah. uh, i love all short content so it's it's a sort of a passion project of mine one day the anthologies the market will improve and the anthologies will actually start making a profit but for now i'm just i do that because i love short stories um but yeah the so we've talked about you know the tropes that you use what genre or subgenre would you consider this to be um, mostly urban fantasy. The, um, the subtitle you see on Amazon was actually marketing, a marketing idea by our, by Silver Empire, because they figured the subtitle was just a great place to stick more keywords. Um, so it, it's, I, you know, calling it Catholic action horror. Yeah. Has put off some people, but, um, I gotta tell you, it makes for some hilarious one-star reviews where they're talking about, oh my god, how dare he put prayer in this book? Okay, what part of Saint Tommy and Catholic action horror did you not understand? Uh, but no, I, I originally started writing these as urban fantasy, and by the time I had designed the method of murder for a possessed serial killer, uh, I, I had to stop, and I sent an email to the publisher, and I said, um, Hey, boss, uh, 
I know you want an urban fantasy, but I think I got a horror novel. <laughs> he said, okay, don't worry about it. We, we, we can make do. Okay. So was that something that you see potentially changing with the with the republication or is it you just sticking with it because it's what's out there already? Well, we have to stick with it um, for the earlier books for a simple reason that uh, Amazon had a hissy fit because the subtitle didn't match exactly. And we had, you know, in, in the original printing, I had like 120 reviews, maybe 150 reviews on Hellspawn. And Amazon didn't want to transfer them over because, again, the Tuscany Bay tried publishing it without the subtitles. So um, I haven't checked. We might wind up. Yeah, okay. Um, the ones Tuscany Bay have published um, lack the extra long subtitle because okay. we didn't need it for the other ones. Uh, we needed it for the, the original eight uh, Silver Empire had already published. Um, and of course, looking at them, <sighs> Amazon being Amazon, they have only transferred the reviews from two of the original eight publishings. So where's right. Tuscany Bay is still yelling at Amazon trying to get the other hundred reviews spread out over the other six books transferred over. What you okay. gonna do? Well hopefully they fix that for you. Uh, and so now let's talk about the story. It's well, the main character, at least. So what can you tell us about St. Tommy? Um, what makes him unique in the crowded field of science fiction and fantasy? Uh, well, speculative fiction, I guess, since it's a little bit of everything. Um, that is, well, he's fun to write in part because, you know, he thinks he's nothing special because, you know, what does he do? He goes to church 60 days a year, 52 Sundays, eight holy days of obligation, and that's it. Uh, and yeah, sure, he works for multiple church functions. That's just being sociable. It's called community policing. It's part of his job. And uh, why wouldn't he put up uh, a, a deserving homeless person in his house? He's got a spare room. And, you know, normal, casual dismissive almost of you know all of his random little good deeds he is a homicide detective who isn't jaded and isn't becoming jaded anytime soon and every time somebody catches him you know it's like yeah well i saw you over there and i saw you over there um how did you wind up being two places in once and how did the other how did the other you end up levitating and he tries to explain that he's got powers of a saint. And they smile, they nod, they think it over, and they go, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> and it drives him crazy because he's going like, how can you say this? I am nothing special. It's like, dude, I've met you. <laughs> so it's one of those running gags. And um, he's one of the few characters that I have written. Uh, that he doesn't really have much of a dark side. 
I, I specialize in a lot of people who, you know, they, they'd be the shadow when they grew up. They all know what evil lurks in the hearts of men uh, in sometimes in closer experience than they would like. And um, Tommy's one of the few good people that I've written and he's still, he has no problem with shooting people in the back of the head because it's like, okay, there are a dozen guys. They're all shooting at my police station. I am not going to yell, freeze, police, because I'm going to be riddled with bullets. And it's okay. one of those that caught me because it's like, wait, where did this come from? Dude, you're the goody two-shoes, aren't you? And, you know, then he came up with the line of, you know, I live in New York. Marcus of Queensberry, Marcus of Queensberry is a Ben and Jerry's flavor. Wait, is it really? No, it's not. Or is that but a joke? That's a oh, joke. I was going to say, if it was, I mean, that that might actually be one that wasn't stupid because they come up with some really stupid names. Yes, they do. But, um, you know, it's like, the only fair fight is one I win. They're all trying to kill people. You know, it's okay. quite legal to shoot them now. <laughs> and so do you have, do you have, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I say, do you have him becoming like some series that are police procedurals almost? They they have it essentially every episode is a reset, right? With maybe a little bit of a plot action going forward. Others they show the the development of the character like getting more jaded or more gritty or or maybe finding hope again. So, do you show progression in the character, or is it sort of each one episodic and sort of stands alone? Like, how do you write the series? I try to make it so that you can come into each book fresh, but there is character development. Um, you know, he's not getting grittier. It's more like he's becoming more comfortable with the abilities he's been given. Uh, he, he treats them as gifts that can be taken away at any time. And at least one point, they are, where he's going, huh, what happened here? And I wind up giving him more equipment because the threats he winds up facing become bigger and bigger. And he winds up developing because he gets more even more responsibilities. You know, book one, he starts off married with a 12-year-old kid and those responsibilities end up expanding as time goes on, and he has to step up even more than he already is. And he still thinks, yeah, this is just my job. I am a cop. Um, yeah, there's, there is a Supreme Court ruling that basically boils down to uh, public servants do, ha do not have to risk their life to save your ass. And I make sure to strictly mention that in one of the books where Tommy looks at those people who use that court ruling and his first thought is you swore an oath if you are not willing to risk your butt to save the civilians we are sworn to protect what the hell are you doing in this job it's what it's fun because he's, it's one of the few times I can get him really pissed off and you know he, okay. he, you know, he goes to confession, and it's like, "Bless me, Father, for I have sinned." I really wanted to throw this pedophile out of a window. Okay, you wanted to, but you didn't. 
No. So what are you confessing to? I was just really pissed off. It's a sin of wrath. You, you didn't do anything to him, did you? No, but I was kind of rough with the cuffs, handcuffs. It's like, shut up, shut up, next sin. Just give me a head. Stop giving me a headache. Because <laughs> even the priests are like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> so, okay. It, it's so a running gag. I have do, you, do you have plans for the overall series, or are you sort of writing it by the seat of your pants? Oh, uh, this was actually the first series I had to outline. Um, Silver Empire wanted me to submit outlines first, and it was fun because half of my output has been totally seat of the pants or discovery writer seat of the pants. Um, and I got to tell you, I threw out about half the outline for this book because I was bored and it's like, uh, most of my writing goes for the Raymond Chandler school where he suggests that if the plot gets slow, send in somebody through the door with a handgun or a machine gun or something. Um, yeah. And I wound up putting in like four or five random encounter shootouts because I feel like the plot's getting slow. Guns! Um, so. Okay, so this is set in New York. Please yeah. tell me you have at least one scene where yeah. someone has a Tommy gun. Oh, yeah. For reasons. Book three. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, um, the cover artist put a, put use the Tommy gun on the front on the front cover, and it's like, do you think you can fit that into the book? Yes. Yes, I can. Yeah. Um, so we're, we've talked about a lot about Tommy. Um, does his family play a large role, or are they more just background characters? They become more involved as as uh, the series goes on. Um, his wife is just a housewife uh, until she becomes the homeschooler, schooling mother, uh, who also leads the church to the gun range trips, uh, who also organizes several things with the church. Um, and at certain points, let's just say he's got a gun safe and he does not have multiple guns just so he can use them. Um, I only use the uh, kidnapped family member once and that's when the wife gets involved and it's like, I think, I try to remember if I gave her an AR or a shotgun. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so we've talked about the main character. What about any secondary characters? Were there any of them that were especially memorable to you? Unfortunately, that's all of them. Um, originally, my mandate was cut down the amount of characters because my casts spiral. And uh, there have been some reviews left behind that are, eh, there are too many characters. I got confused. There aren't many of them, but there were enough to be an issue. So I was told right. have a primary character, a secondary characters, and maybe two or three background characters, which is how I wound up with, I, I, I tried, I wound up making a primary character by having the entire, uh, the entire series is narrated by Tommy. Uh, it was the only way I could handle him being a saint 
because looking at through his eyes, he has no idea why. And if I looked at it through anyone else's eyes, it would look like I would be painting him with rose rose tinted glasses or a filter or whatever. Um, but I've got his partner who is an older cop who is jaded and uh, he's, he's going, this poor guy is going through all this and it's like, wait, I'm sorry. We're, we're fighting a what now? <laughs> and <laughs> he gets a lot of development because he doesn't have superpowers <laughs> and he has to come up with various and sundry ways to carry his own weight doing all this, which is why, where a lot of the MacGyver stuff comes in. Um, especially where it's like, yes, I do know how to make homemade thermite, um, which came in handy a few times. Uh, the, the wife became more of a backup shooter. Um, his, you know, he, he's got, uh, I, I specifically remember the medical examiner because if you ever watch a band called Within Temptation, I basically built her off the lead singer. Um, and the assistant district attorney, I very vividly remember because I directly ripped him off from John C. Wright. The guy even talks in paragraphs like he does. So... Yeah, I, I have a okay. lot of fun, and there are more characters as the series goes on, but uh, those are the ones that really stop, stand out at the top of the list. Also, there's a villain I based off of uh, Jeffrey Hulder from Live and Let Die. <laughs> so, he was the okay. tall guy playing so, <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned that obviously there's a supernatural element. You can't say that without the saint in the, in the series title. So does that mean there's a chance that this series exists in the same universe as love at first bite in some of your other paranormal or are they all separate IPs completely? The original plan by silver empire was to make sure that they are all separate IPs. I have put in just enough head cannon and just enough references so that if somebody had read all the other books, they could paint a picture. Um, in fact, okay. one book I am self-publishing, uh, it's the next book I'm writing, is a crossover with all of my main characters from three different series. <laughs> so. Okay. So. All right. So it, we it, talked it, about the, we talked go ahead. No, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, that's the one thing with lag sometimes, um, with with the uh, streamyards. So, does your we talked about the main character? We talked about some of your secondary characters. Does your story have a, a main bad guy that they're confronting? Is it an episodic bad guy? Obviously, without spoilers, but but who is the antagonist? Oh, there are. I have two I usually have two two antagonists. Uh, one is the antagonist du jour. And the other is, you know, the one behind the scenes pulling the curtains, um, which is funny. I didn't plan it that way. <laughs> it just happened. Um, and mysteriously, every three books is kind of like a trilogy. <laughs> and I don't know how some of that happened because 
you know, book one, it's like, I want it to be a serial killer, possessed by a demon. Fine. And um, my wife suggested, well, how about you have a cult in there as another bad guy? And by the time I was done writing book one, the, the death cult of book two had summoned the demon to possess the serial killer to have some kind of demonic plan behind uh, the events of book one. It was weird. Again, don't know where that came from, but it all worked. Who knew? Um, and another friend make another suggestion about uh, who should be a villain, and he became the bad guy behind the cult, and he was the bad guy for book three. All it was strange, but again, it worked. And I don't know how, because I had originally wanted them all to be relatively unconnected, aside from the characters. But nope, it spiraled, which is pretty much the story of everything I've ever written. And then it spiraled as a recurring gag. It has a way of doing that when you let the creative monsters loose. So speaking of characters... If yours ever met you in a back alley after all the hell you put Tommy and his family and, and the city of New York through, how do you see that interaction playing out? Uh, oh, with, with Tommy, it would be relatively peaceful. It would be mostly a matter of, dude, you need help. With what's in your head and what comes out of your head, you need help. <laughs> you know. As opposed to, uh, right. as opposed to, David Weber's description of what would happen with uh, Honor Harrington meeting him. <laughs> he he had a serious love affair with his character. Yes, but he also described. I mean, it's that, a good thing. He's, oh yeah. I would say it's a good thing because he spends a lot of time with her. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, he he also described yeah. it as being you know yes if uh, Honor Harrington showed up at my front door one of these days, she'd punch me in the face just for killing off one of her early boyfriends. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, okay. Right. You killed him off for a plot point. <laughs> I mean, you know, what else are you going to do? At least he didn't kill her off. He should, she should be thankful. <clears throat> so this is where we're going to ask for a peek behind the curtain. So were there any cool scenes or ideas from Hellspawn that didn't make the final book, but would make an interesting story for listeners? Um, cool scenes? No. Uh, scenes? Yes. Um, one of the things I tried to do was lend some aspect to a police procedural um, to the books because he's a cop. He's going to approach things from cop directions. And... I, and I found out by the time I was going to do a whole lot of pounding the pavement, going door to door, asking a lot of witnesses questions, and committing a lot of interviews, I was at the point in the story where it's like, you know what? We just spent an entire chapter being talked at by a politician in a building uh, that smells so evil Tommy had to steal himself before he could even go in. You know, he doesn't know exactly why the building is evil. He doesn't know if it's because, for all he knows, the serial killer's in the building. The, 
punchline is going to be, you know, all politicians in my universe are evil, but that's a different conversation. Uh, I'm very neutral. All politicians are evil. Um, and I could not do another chapter of walking around and talking to people because, <laughs> you know, the politician's a psychopath. She loves the sound of her own voice. Uh, it, it's one of those moments of she's preaching everyone's ear off and I want to shoot her. And um, you know what? Screw this. Uh, let's have let's skip all the walking and talking to other people. And uh, Tommy and his partner leave that that interview with the semi politician. Goes to a church because Tommy needs to pray just to rinse out his brain. And then the car blows up. <laughs> Because, oh, that was an unexpected twist. Yes, because if you can't send somebody through the door with a gun, explosives work. And uh, that was enough cause to go back to the previous politician, haul her ass in, and let's now have a different conversation. One that goes, would you like us to arrest you for conspiracy or one of your members for planting a car bomb? Um. Funny enough, that was one of those moments where I never actually said or concluded who put the car bomb in his car <laughs> because there are some things that don't get solved. But it, it was one of those moments where it's like, yeah, I had something, but I had something cooler. Uh, the, the whole walking, talking, interviewing people sequence actually fit better into the next book. Because, okay. you know, the cult of book two uh, actually revolves around an entire uh, business, let's say. So, and you, okay. know how it, you know how it is trying to get answers out of corporations. <laughs> fair, fair. Now, you set this in the modern world. So, instead of asking you to tell us about the universe, why don't you tell us the ways where your universe diverges from modernity? So, what are your add-ons to modern worlds for people that are reading? To start with, uh, 2020 never happened. Uh, it sucked in so many different ways. Um, I have my own Pope. Um, actually, the Pope in the St. Tom universe has shown up in other IPs. So that actually works back with your other question. And as far as I'm concerned, he is far cooler than the Pope we currently have, for reasons. Uh, and a lot of... I try to avoid modern-day politics as much as is humanly possible. Um, in fact, I actually started banging my head against the wall because I would write something down in... It started in Hellspawn where it's like, okay, what is the most absurd uh, policy I can think of and make it so absolutely absurd that, you know, nobody would ever do it. Two years later, somebody does it. It's become very annoying. <laughs> um, hell, I even put in... You know, nobody had heard in early 
2020. Uh, if you asked around, I don't think anybody could have heard of, what was it? Started out in Europe. I want to say black shirts. They're wrong, okay. but they'll come to me. Anyway, uh, and it's, you know, and I wound up doing like half a page of description because my editor, uh, who at the time was Mrs. John C. Wright, L. Jaji Lamplighter, um, said, who are these people? And they said, oh, okay, well, they're an obscure little group. And later on in 2020, they were burning down parts of Europe. So it's like, can, can, can people please stop reading my books and take notes from the bad guys? You know, it, it got to the point where right. for the last three books, I started stealing stuff from the headlines just so I wouldn't be writing new crap. <laughs> But, right. you know, if I steal from the headlines before and make them, you know, and introduce Lovecraftian demonic stuff, uh, nobody can copy it. <laughs> right. That I is a concern. That. People might, the FBI might come a calling. Yeah. Hey, they visited Tom Clancy just because he read too many books about submarines. But, um, you know, a, a lot of what I wound up doing is expanding the quote secret world or secret history version of uh, history where you know gee what blew up in Tunguska it was obviously you know a supercharged vampire or um, they won't go into the reign of terror and why they had to guillotine people uh, you know things along those lines um Yes, I got a history degree, and all I did was design the history of the supernatural for the last 300 years. <laughs> okay. So that's where there's difference. So now, uh, Hellspawn is clearly part of a series. I know because you've said it. It says it on Amazon. Amazon lists 12 books out, so I'm guessing some of those are pre-orders. Yeah. Um, so after that, is their story done? What do you expect to come next for these characters? Um, I've got... This book, this the primary series ends with book 12. I do have enough characters running around that I could, and I've got bits and pieces of kind of an epilogue story. Uh, but for the most part, it's going to wrap up at book 12. And for those people who have been paying attention, I've pretty much projected exactly how the series is going to end from book one, but I'm going to be very interested to see how many people, how many people are surprised. Okay. So is there potential spinoffs in the universe? Uh, just one. Um, because, well, after a while I started skipping, um, you know, the, started putting three years between books because I was shooting at this guy every six weeks. For the first three books, it's like no. He, he, at this point, he's just going to die from exhaustion. Um, right. And so his, you know, his kid has gotten older, and you know, in you know, the kid grew up with his father being a superhero. <laughs> and uh, so potentially, the kid get a POV book. Uh. The kid is probably going to get a POV book. I haven't decided if he's going to be third person or not. 
Um, I, that one I have to write, but that book is like five, five more down the line. <laughs> At least I think it's only five. Okay. So, so we all know that every literary universe has its own consistent rules of science, tech, and magic. So you've mentioned some of the angel skills, but what other kind of, um, since the science and tech is going to be a modern world, what other sorts of magics can we expect? Um, I wound up designing uh, several uh, magical artifacts along the way. Um, there it's, oh yes, well, history only goes back about 10,000 years, and after that, things get sketchy. And I decided, okay, well, 10,000, you know, before 10,000 years, what's what was kicking around? What could have been kicking around? And I basically have, for example, book four. Uh, I have a pre-flood artifact stolen from the British Museum. And yeah, it's basically a demonic weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> and okay. I used it in such a way as, well, I refer to them in short as jihadi X-Men. Uh, because okay. I, I, I wanted more superpower bad guys. Um, and the one of the side villains are terrorists running around London. So I wound up with jihadi X-Men. Uh, <laughs> um, which is funny because the second, the book, book after that is called Crusader. <laughs> but um, so I, I've made up my own artifacts and that spiraled along the way. Um, I wanted, I wanted at one point to give him powered armor. And it's like, how do I give powered armor in urban fantasy? Oh, simple. I, I just have, uh, Shattered golems attach themselves to Tommy. Congratulations, it's now powered armor. <laughs> you know, things like that mm, here. Okay. And I develop, I wound up developing a lot of the mythology as I went along because it's just a matter of, I wanted Tommy to have a new toy or I wanted the villains to have uh, bigger, badder weapons. And the more toys and uh, devices I gave Tommy, the more toys and devices the bad guys kept getting. getting. <laughs> so it wound up becoming, why do I have an urban fantasy arms race going on here? All right. So we know your universe has uh, fantastical creatures in it because we've talked about that this whole time. But, whole time, whole time. Um, so how did you go about creating them when you when you wrote them? Were you were inspired by your nightmares? Did you let nature inspire you? Did you make them up out of whole cloth? Or did you pull them directly from the Bible? Like, where did your fantastic creatures come from? Most of it was research, either demonic research or um, folklore research. Um, I was, you know, I was playing The Witcher at the time, the video games, and it's, oh yeah, they, they stole a lot of these from uh, Eastern European mythology. It's like, okay, time to look up Eastern European mythology. Um, so I started looking into that uh, for basic monsters, you know, uh, necrophages, 
uh, where it's like, yeah, they're about the size of a gorilla and have scales like armor plating. Yeah, this is a good bad guy. Um, but, um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, in the first few books, I was limiting myself to research into actual demonic infestations or demonic possession um, and even curses. Uh, I, I had fun in the book, in book six, where I went full Lovecraft, <laughs> where it's like, um, one of his stories was called Something in the Walls. So I just used that as a chapter title and because I had tripped over stories from an actual exorcist in Rome where somebody was cursed and the person doing the cursing had hidden little artifacts in the walls of the guy's house. So, you know, which point the real creepy part is, how did this guy get in? But uh, that's a different conversation. Um, so I started with straight up research and when I wanted more monsters, I just went into uh, straight up folklore. Uh, I was a little tempted to use a Wendigo, but it's one of those moments of, well, Tommy doesn't carry silver on him, and these things are nasty. Let's use that somewhere else. <laughs> and I did. But uh, that that's where a lot of this stuff has come up. Okay. So, um, you know, normally when we wrap this up, I would ask you if we missed anything, but you've already covered the normal spot where, hey, if you know, if you're looking for audiobooks, you, you've already mentioned your publisher is looking for that. So let's talk a little bit about the next book in the series that's coming out. It's got some of the glorious ad copy for his universe, by the way. Uh, so, so it's uh, when a possessed serial killer unleashes hell on his city, Detective Thomas Nolan can stop him. But how do you forensics on, do forensics on a demon? I, I really like your ad copy, by the way. So, so hats off to you. Thank you. But uh, can we just talk a minute about this newest book, uh, Lightsaber, that he's got going yeah. on? So what's what's uh what's the the sell us on book ten real quick? Because if you can sell them on book ten, they'll want to buy one through nine too. Uh. Book 10 opens very simply where a Hollywood director's daughter has overdosed. And, you know, it looks straight up, you know, just another junkie. Uh, things change when just another junkie uh, gets up from the place where she gets up from the chalk outline and tries to kill the police officer who is guarding the crime scene. And it's like, okay, it's a, it's a zombie. It's now... Hey, Tommy, this is your department. And um, okay. in order to torture Tommy, I have put him on a uh, joint supernatural task force. So it's, oh, look, this is a high-profile supernatural crime. This is your problem. <laughs> and he winds okay. up digging into the murder, and, well, it turns into a rabbit hole that goes straight to hell. As usual. Understood. And then this is, if you want to check it out, the uh, look at the covers put out by uh, Tough Skinny Bay um, for his 12-book um, series. So, uh, yeah, definitely check that out. We're going to leave that one up while we wrap this show up because why not? 
Um, and so clearly this interview is uh, winding down. But before we let you go, I have to ask, what is the age range for this story? So we have some families that listen to the show and read books together. So what would you say the age range is for your um, St. Tommy series? Um, new adult is you can probably get away with. Um, I'm not going to give this to what I'm not going to give this to kids. Um, new adult, read it. Uh, if you are a parent giving your books, giving this book to somebody, obviously read the book first to make your own judgment. Um, I try to keep a lot of the horror details as clinic, clinic, yeah, as clinical as possible. You know, there are some people who have missed some of the horror because I used straight up scientific language to describe exactly what nightmare scenario happened. And there are people who just skipped right over it and didn't realize it. So, uh, now granted, I am odd. I am very odd. I, I was reading, <laughs> I was reading, uh, you know, the once in future King when I was in sixth grade. So, uh, I have a very skewed idea of what children should be reading. Um, 16 and up, probably. Uh, you know, once you hit college, you can probably handle it. Uh, if you've got a, a young teenager who is a horror aficionado, I can't imagine who does, but just in case, again, read it first, then give it to the kid. Uh, most of them are heavy on the action, but there are some sequences where I was writing them and I was a little bit nervous the day after, sorry, that evening because I was writing about demons at two in the morning. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So this is the part, dear listener, where I remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. So do your part, people. Uh, with that said, Declan, how can listeners find you? Um, you can probably trip over me. Um, I've got, I'm most, if you look up Declan Finn books, one word on Twitter, you can find me. I'm Declan Finn on Gab. I'm not there very often, but uh, I'm there. Basically, if there's a social media platform, you can find me. Uh, Getter, Parlor, MeWe, Facebook, YouTube. Um, did I miss one? I'm sure I did. I am not on Truth Social, uh, mainly because last time I checked, it wasn't taking applicants. But uh, if it starts working, it'll probably show up there too because it's another platform. Welcome to the wonders of welcome to the wonders of being an independent author. Uh, you do ninety percent of your own marketing, even if you've got a publicist. Um, Okay. So And so we talked about so, before show getting a link tree, and I have suggested that to him because we're looking into it for the podcast. And if he decides to take the plunge, he can link all of it in one handy link. Uh, but for now, we've got most of his links on our uh, show notes, so check those out. And from there, you can sort of expand outwards and track him down as you do uh, with authors that you like. But I, I do suggest you give these a shot. Um you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore show, or excuse me, twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sorry about that. Underscore uh, twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Uh, you can email us at blasters and blaze podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blaze podcast at gmail.com. 
You can join us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. Uh, if you want to leave a comment on the episodes post, uh, I do tend to tag the author so they know. Um, so if you've got questions for Declan, he likes to engage with his readers. If you've got questions, you know, pre-reading, he, he'd be happy to do that too. We've talked about that as well. So give that a shot. We have our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Where as little as 99 cents a month, you can help support the show and keep the lights on. Or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section for his pod, it's for the podcast. And I will keep my co-host Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly uh, caffeinated. They will drink until they can taste sound and see color or whatever that expression is. I get it wrong every time. But uh, yeah, it's funny. So just insert laugh track there. All right. So uh, with that totally screwed up, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Handley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week with at the same time where we indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. All right. Thanks for stopping by, Declan. We had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. <laughs>